This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to bring back to the show Phil Simon. He was on the show late last year talking about his latest book at the time, Project Management in the Hybrid Workplace. We were talking all about communication of work and in work, as well as the tools that you need to do that, the changes that have been happening when it comes to remote work and using those tools, all that kind of good stuff. He is back this time to talk about his latest book, The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Shaping the Workplace. And in this conversation, we're talking about what those nine forces are. Some of them include employee empowerment, systematic inflation, generative AI like ChatGPT, blockchain, immersive technologies like VR, etc., physical dispersion, and more. We're going to touch on all those things. Why now is the time to be talking about this if we haven't already been thinking about it, talking about it, planning for it? We recently had Seth Godin on talking about the Song of Significance, which was kind of the macro overall, hey, something's wrong with work and we need to start talking about it and can't ignore it anymore. This book is kind of a companion piece to that book. So if you like that conversation, definitely jump in on this one. Phil doesn't call this a tactical book. In fact, he says it's not a tactical book, but in a sense, it is in the same way that Seth's is. It's that having the conversations allows you as an individual as well as a team to come up with your own tactics to address these tectonic forces that are shaping the workplace around you. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Phil Simon. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show, Phil Simon. Phil, welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. Eric, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to another vibrant chat. Yes. And, you know, I'd be remiss to say that, you know, pre this, we talked all about catching up on Better Call Saul through a little bit of succession in there. But uh, yeah, that's not what we're here to talk about. But just, you know, so people know, like, we've been chatting for a while and I was like, we should hit record and actually talk about your book. So... <laughs> Twist my arm. Yes. You've got a brand new book out. Honestly, you're pretty prolific as well, because last time you were here and you've written 14 books. Is this the 14th? I want to make sure I get that right. It is. Yeah. So the new one is called The Nine, not the 14, The Nine, The, <laughs> the Tectonic Forces Shaping the Workplace. And, and I think if anybody's paying attention, which I think they are, they can sense that the tectonic plates of the workplace are and have been shifting, not just due to the pandemic, but, you know, it predates that really a lot of these things that have been kind of in motion and, and moving. But I'm curious, like you've written 14 books now. This is the 14th. And what was it about the current, I guess, climate or again, tectonic forces shifting and shaking and earthquaking that made you think now is the time I've got to collect these things and we can speak to those things specifically. But what was it about this moment in time that made you think, 
okay, this is the next book. I will point to the release of ChatGPT in November. I think it was November 30th of last year as the tipping point because I'd been thinking about dispersion, remote hybrid work, automation. As you said, that's existed for a long time, but the pandemic accelerated or intensified it. But when ChatGPT hit, and I thought, this is a big deal, and that kind of fed into complementary technologies like blockchain, and we can talk more about that, but I didn't see a book out there that covered these forces in this way. And from my point of view, we're, we're not reverting to pre-pandemic you know, places. I mean, Elon Musk can try all he wants, but and for every company here like Disney or Chase mandating that all employees or senior employees return to the office full time, we don't hear about companies that have thrown in the towel. And again, I, I took a very data-based approach to this book. Um, I think office occupancy in the U.S. is 49% compared to pre-pandemic levels, but that's starkly different than airplanes. It's 99% watch NBA basketball like I do that's sold out. Restaurants and comedy clubs and all these things have basically returned to pre-COVID levels, but the workplace hasn't. And the question becomes why? And that led to the forces. And here we are. Do you remember, I don't know that I remember this off the top of my head, is what was that occupancy percentage number pre-pandemic? Does anybody have any kind of actual benchmarks there? Or was anybody paying enough attention to it at that time? Yeah, there are companies like Castle Systems that have put out a lot of data. But I think pre-pandemic, it was, depending on the city or the state or the time of the year, 95-ish percent. And there are reasons for that. Inflation is one of the forces. And yeah, it's topical. But if you go back 20 years or maybe 25 to the dot-com boom, interest rates were very low. We needed sexy offices for our dot-coms to justify our valuation. Money was cheap, so we built probably too much. And at the same time, we've got this housing crisis, particularly in cities, but you can't just snap your fingers and convert commercial real estate to residential. I know Vancouver's had some success and was reading an article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal about how we want our bedrooms to have windows in them. Maybe one of the solutions for office space might be putting bedrooms around the edges, but then having this communal space in the middle for kitchens or pool tables or laundry or whatever. Uh, kind of like what Adam Newman of WeWork fame with, was trying to do with We Live. So there were just all these things taking place. And I hadn't seen a book out there that covered them. And it was Toni Morrison who famously said, if the book that you want to read doesn't exist, then you have to be the one to write it. Yeah. I know that we've got a couple of, we've got a bunch of different topics here. I mean, we've got, they kind of fall into tech and people, I would think, and maybe kind of the atmosphere. What I mean by that is, and I'm just going to rattle them off real quick. You mentioned generative AI and chat GPT. I would think that automation kind of follows with that as well. It's a cousin. There's a reason that chapter comes right afterward because it it naturally followed. And then now blockchain followed generative AI. So there actually was a method to my madness. And I debated putting, this is astute observation, Eric, the chapters into parts but to your point, they were so intertwined that it seemed arbitrary to say, well, generative AI is a tech thing, not a people thing. Well, people use these tools. So where do you draw the line? I, I just wound up tossing out the whole notion of breaking the chapters into parts and just doing 10 straight chapters. Yeah. So you've got, let's see. So we've, we've mentioned automation, generative AI, blockchain. You've got the immersive technologies like VR and AR and things like that. And then as we were talking earlier about the physical dispersion, remote work, in other words, and employee empowerment. So the employee empowerment and the physical dispersion are kind of human things. They're all human things. They all interact. It's almost, it's all cyborg-ish in a way, but I'm kind of drawing a line between like the actual humans of 
the employee empowerment, how your employees are doing and, and how to best serve them and how they best serve you. And that goes kind of hand in hand with physical dispersion to a point, not entirely interlocked, but to a point. The one outlier here is the systematic inflation. I think that's more of a climate thing or, or weather, climate and weather being climates long term, weather is a, you know, short term. And so as I kind of was looking over the different topics in the book, I was like, okay, I can kind of, I'm kind of mentally grouping them into these different places, although they all connect. So, right. Yeah. That was the most fascinating part, Eric, of writing this book, looking at the interdependencies or interrelationships between and among these different forces. The one that you didn't mention was fractions, whether Mm. it's fractional real estate or fractional employment. We've seen a rise of chief marketing officers, not at a company like Google or Meta or Microsoft, your multi-trillion dollar company in some cases, you pretty much need a full-time CFO. But what about your three or 400 person company that is certainly growing, but can't afford to pay $400,000 a year for a chief legal counsel or something? Uh, with respect to inflation, it's an interesting interpretation. I would argue that it is in part people-driven. I go back to the, the pandemic and the airlines were raising prices for flights. Well, people didn't care. It had been two years since they saw their loved ones and prices be damned, they were going to get on the plane. Or we see this with, say, in Phoenix, when the Suns made the finals, I think it was two years ago, maybe it was a year and a half, doesn't matter. A decent seat would run you $800 because we couldn't go to basketball games for a long time. So there's this fusion, I think, of trends and call them forces if you like, but it, it's really difficult for me, if not impossible, to say this is a systematic one, this is more of a micro one, this is macro, this is micro, this is people, this is tech. Oh, and the, the other force that we forgot now that I mentioned it was unhealthy analytics. When you think about something being people-oriented, like, say, dispersion, I'd argue that it is a big tech reason driving it, and that's the rise of collaboration technologies like Slack and Microsoft Teams and Zoom And then the immersive technologies like AR and VR that you mentioned earlier uh, certainly intensify that. And there are a lot of examples in the book, whether it's Accenture or Walmart, of companies that have basically gone all in on this stuff and really seen some significant benefits. Now, I know that you say that this book is not a tactical book. What do you mean by that specifically? You're not going to find a listicle, right? There's not a chart on page 37. If you're a Swedish healthcare company, follow these steps. And here's how you affect change with respect to these trends. It just isn't like that. There are, I would like to think, some tips about how to proceed. And certainly chapter 10 offers a number of options for how to proceed in this environment. You can ignore what's going on. You can actively fight it. (laughs) Elon Musk. Or you can steer into the skid, a few other things going on there. But you won't find things like, when should I adopt immersive technologies what should i automate and when there are some models there but you know ideally the consulting the speaking the work that i do around the book will help a company figure it out for them i'm just not smart enough i don't know if anyone is to say all right here is a definitive list of everything that you need to do i don't see how that's possible so i'm proud of the fact that in many cases i don't have the answer but hopefully i ask questions or frame current issues or forces if you like in a way that makes people Yeah. So it's not a tactical book in the sense that you're providing the tactics, but it is in the sense that someone going through the book will be able to, by going through the questions and the discussions, et cetera, that you're bringing up and thinking, you know, in other words, there's no silver bullet, there's no blanket solution, but there are solutions that are right for your business, but you have to figure them out as you ask the right questions or come up with the answers for yourself and your business. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I did a podcast yesterday and the host told me that he read the blockchain chapter twice because he had always, as many people have, I think myself included a while ago, conflated blockchain 
with cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. Well, when it turns out that there are plenty of other applications for blockchain technology, and I mentioned some in the book, but when generative AI tools like ChatGPT launched, I said to myself, we're going to need to prove providence. So Eric, did you write this code? Did you create this image? Did you just build this website? Did you take this photo or video? Okay, prove it. That's a big deal. We've seen plenty of CEOs. I was reading about one a couple of weeks ago and said, well, all right, if you're going to be using these tools and we want 30 to 50 times the productivity, well, that flies in the face of worker empowerment. And how does that all play out? So again, it's not tactical in the sense that I can say, all right, well, if you've got six parts worker empowerment and four parts dispersion, then you need 12 parts automation or generative AI. And when I think about some of the books that I have written that would qualify as tactical like Slack or Zoom for Dummies, I mean, they pretty much tell you, oh, here's how I set up a breakout room in Zoom step by step. That's what I mean by not being a tactical book. But but I certainly don't think that it's this overly theoretical text. There are plenty of, I think, pieces of advice, most of which I think are based on pretty solid research and statistics. There are lots of charts. I feel like in my books, I have to prove that my opinion's valid. You can still disagree, but you can't say this guy didn't do his research. Yeah, definitely cannot say that. I mean, you mentioned that generative AI was kind of the tipping point or the, you know, the final catalyst for this book getting written. And obviously it of all these things, whether it's immersive technologies and employee empowerment and remote work and inflation, even automation, blockchain for sure. All of those have been things that have been top of mind in the last two to three years. But the generative AI thing, seems to have come out of almost nowhere. No one was ready for it. No one was, I mean, everybody was talking AI, but no one was doing AI or talking about it being applied or used. And we did an episode recently where I had somebody come and talk about it specifically for the whole episode. And that was kind of just a a primer episode to get people kind of used to it, those that hadn't dealt with it yet. I'm curious, other than that one, is there any other one of these that you feel like is like, the biggest catalyst for what's going on right now? Like if people are already like, oh, I've already got generative AI down, which again, I don't think anybody can say that, but if they've already educated themselves to the point where they're caught up for right now, their level of intelligence or their level of being caught up will disappear instantly week over week because it just moves so fast. Is there another one of these topics that you think is also competing for big impact? Oh, employee empowerment, hands down. That's why I started with that one. It affects so much. It affects employees saying, I'm not coming back to the office full time. You'll have to fire me. It affects the structure of of the workplace, how much square footage you need, right? Because if people are going to be working in a hybrid or rural capacity, we don't need as much real estate. And that could potentially in cities lead to what the New York Times has called this urban doom effect. So fewer people commute. That makes it harder for bagel shops and dry cleaners. So they go out of business. And the thing becomes this vicious cycle. But yeah, I mean, there are plenty of CEOs, Eric, who want Elon Musk to succeed. I mentioned an article from Kevin Roos of the New York Times. He of the two-hour chat with ChatGPT and saying, you should leave your wife because I love you. This is AI talking to him. He calls it bossism. This notion that we don't want our employees to be empowered. But again, a lot of things that you mentioned at the start of this recording uh, have really intensified. I mean, there's always been some level of worker empowerment, but when people had to stop coming into work and work from home, by all accounts, they were productive. So there's this massive trust issue that takes place. And right now, it's if you're a middle manager, how do you evaluate people? 
when you can't see them. You know, proximity bias is a big deal. According to the Slack feature forum, a couple of years ago, I think it was the top issue for managers, 37% said that proximity bias could lead to this caste system, right? How do you evaluate people when you don't see them out of sight, out of mind? You could be working your ass off at home and I'm slacking at the office, but people see me. So clearly I'm working hard when really I'm not. So again, I'm not going to pick one of my favorite children, so to speak. They are all related, but you can certainly make the argument that in an, if employee empowerment weren't so significant, would dispersion be as much of a um, hotbed issue? And proximity bias is definitely a real thing because I have worked in a cubicle and gotten all my work done for the day and then faked it for the rest of the day. We're talking, this is over a decade ago for about a year or two straight because I had just simplified my process and was still over an abundance of output compared to other people around me. So I kind of felt like that alleviated the guilt of sitting there, you know, air quotes, getting away with whatever, because I was outperforming everybody else. So it didn't really matter. Right. And and that's why chat generative AI tools and automation are so interesting. What if you could do your job in two days a week? And I talked to a friend of mine. He does very well for himself. He's about to have a second kid. And he said, I'd love to work four days a week and make 80% of my salary so I can be a better dad. So again, the, the fractions chapter, I think, is the one that surprises a lot of the readers who have spoken to me about the book. You know, I didn't really think about that, but that makes a lot of sense. Whereas to be fair, Everyone's talking about chat GPT and everyone's talking about dispersion and remote and hybrid work and some of the other forces. But yeah, look, I mean, from my point of view, your company is paying for your, your time and potentially an output. And if you are able to simplify things, um, should you be penalized for that? You know, in theory, you could walk out of the door at one o'clock, but everyone would notice. But if you're at home, they don't notice as much. So again, this was just, it was a fascinating book to write. Well, and that's what I was going to get at was this whole idea of it was that instance that was my example was pre remote work for me. But then remote work came into the picture four or five years later, somewhere in there. And suddenly I realized it's, it's a whole other beast. And I think, you know, this is one of the things where when the pandemic hit, you started to see all these, here's how to optimize your day with remote work. A lot of tactical things, a lot of listicles. It was all really stupid stuff. It was a weird time, honestly, for me as a productivity podcaster, because I wanted to step in and say, well, I've been doing remote work for how many years now? Here's my listicle. But then I was like, that sounds so prescriptive and it is not applicable to so many people. And it's, you know, there's so many caveats and so many different, I don't know. Anyway, but the point being is going back to the proximity bias, it was definitely felt in that remote situation because I was working for a place out in San Diego and they had an office and there was a seven to 10, you know, employee group of people with the boss there. And then there were five to seven scattered across the US. And it was always like, yeah, they don't know what we're doing. And the reporting structure is weird. And I don't know. Anyway, I think it means San Diego. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I can't resist a good Anchorman reference. Keep talking. Couldn't there resist. you go. Yeah. And keep it classy. So anyways, uh, <laughs> point being, the struggle's real. It hasn't gone away. In fact, it's magnified. It, it got magnified because of the pandemic. And now we're, you know, two, three years out. And like you were giving with the percentages of the airplanes and the NBA, things are essentially, for lack of a better term, and don't quote me on this, but they are kind of back to normal and have been, whether that's attitude or factual or whatever, it just is. And people want to move on. So I guess my question here then is, in the talking about employee empowerment, which kind of feeds into all the rest of these things, and I want to go back to fractions for a while because I want to camp on that a little bit. Have you had any, as businesses are struggling, to wrestle with 
the whole idea of well, how much empowerment is the right amount is too much, you know, how much autonomy is allowed versus not like, have you have in your research had any examples of different ways that companies are successfully empowering their employees that is helpful and not creating like backlash? It's tough, I think, Eric, for the companies that have done it a certain way for so long. So whether it's say Jamie Diamond at Chase or Bob Iber at Disney, not that people never work remote, but it certainly wasn't as prevalent. When I think about companies, and I've addressed this in previous books, like Automatic, the company behind WordPress that runs, I think, 42% of the web. Last time I checked Basecamp, Slack before Salesforce acquired it. You know, certain companies, uh, GitLab's another one with Darren Murr, or I guess he left that company a little while ago, but there were companies that had built up the muscle memory. So when the pandemic hit, it really didn't change all that much. People work asynchronously by default. The biggest challenges are occurring in companies that are, they didn't have the muscle memory. They figured a few things out. Maybe they tried to do everything over Zoom, which I'd argue is a mistake. And now they're trying to go back. So there, there certainly are examples of effective remote work arrangements, but I'll be the first person to admit that it is an experiment. Certain jobs lend themselves more to remote work. If you do physical security, that's kind of tough to do remotely. Um, if I'm a chef, I suppose I can cook and mail things in, but maybe I need to be in the office to actually you know, cook the fish or the, the hamburgers. Uh, one of my favorite examples to answer your question more directly is with Cisco in, in one of the chapters in the book. And in their Manhattan office pre-COVID, 70% of their space had been allocated to individual workstations, cubes, desks, whatever. They realized after about a year and a half that they weren't going to go back to exclusive or predominant in-person work you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five. They spent a boatload of money and inverted it. Now they've got all sorts of sensors. You can reserve a room. You've got five minutes to move your tokens to get there because they don't want people reserving rooms and then not being in them because that defeats the purpose. But 70% of the space now is dedicated to group work, collaboration, training sessions, proper in-person meetings. But one of my favorite examples from that is that they swapped out their conference tables. So if you and I are here doing this recording remotely on uh, Ecamm, then I'm looking at you one-on-one. But imagine if I were in a physical office and there were a conference room table and it's a rectangle. So if I'm looking at you at a screen and it's a hybrid meeting, then we're all like this. Well, uh, for the listeners who, who can't see, I'm tilting my head. Well, to have 20 people or however many people are in the meeting tilting their head for an hour isn't really reasonable. So by swapping out the rectangular conference table for a triangular one, it was just more natural to sit like this the whole time. So it's little things like that that I think signal to employees that we understand things have changed. We want the office to be a destination. And guess what, Eric? If you're going to be coding all day long or writing or designing a website, designing individual work, and you need to focus, stay home. We don't want you here. With no other information, I would bet on a company like Cisco succeeding versus other companies that are saying, well, you know, play time's over, get back to work because that ship has sailed. COVID wasn't two or three weeks or two or three months. It's been borderline two or three years, depending on when your company wanted you to go back. We learned new habits. We got back a tremendous amount of our time. The average American pre-pandemic commute was 37 minutes. If you get that back twice per day, how's my math? That's 168 minutes. That's a little over two and a half hours that you could use to exercise or watch Succession or Better Call Stall or play with your kid or crochet or play tennis, whatever you like to do. Uh, not to mention the costs of commuting. Gas is in Arizona a little, about, a little under $5 a gallon. No one likes commuting. So you've probably heard the, the meme or seen some, no one hates the office. People hate the commute to the office. 
Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's funny what you just said brought up that, you know, my brothers and I and, and even and even talk about my mom and trying to help her not do the commuting that she's doing because one, it's eating into her time and her cost of gas and so on. And she's near that retirement age anyway. So it's like, hey, we need you to kind of wean off working. And so all that to say, it's been interesting. People don't think about that cost. They don't think about how much, not just the time commitment. You're not getting paid for your commute. You're just not. That's time that's being put in. If you're going to an office, you're not getting paid for that. You could come out ahead. So hypothetically, let's say that you work in Manhattan and you live in New Jersey like I did. I'd leave the office around five. I'd get home at 630. Now, if you work remotely, you could work till six and get home at six. So you work more. The company benefits. You benefit from not dealing with the stress. You get a half an hour of your time back in that simple scenario and you're not paying for train or gas or tolls or all the above. Yeah. And that's just one of the aspects that we're talking about when it comes to empowerment. There's a lot more that feeds out from that. You mentioned the whole, you know, hey, if I could take 80 percent 
of my salary and have four days instead of five talking about fractions. Let's talk about that a little bit more because it's not just about time and money. It's about attention. It goes much further, the ramifications of that. What do you mean when you talk about fractions? I broke that chapter up into two pieces, Eric. A is fractional real estate. And we can unpack this if you like. But you know, if your employees are only coming in 60% of the time, do you need a full-time office? Could you share it much the way many parents, after they get divorced, share their kids? Right? Can you say company A has got the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Company B has got the office Tuesday and Thursday. There are lots of startups that are figuring out interesting models that are a little bit like timeshare. The second piece is around fractional employment. I mean, moonlighting has been around for a very long time, right? Side hustle is maybe the more popular vernacular these days. But again, if you're a company of three or 400 people and you're, you're growing, you can't afford to spend three or $400,000 on a chief marketing officer. Could you employ one three fifths of the time? And could that chief marketing officer then spend time on other consulting assignments or writing a book or just taking the time off? Again, if we've got automation and we've got remote work and we've got generative AI, the optimistic case is that these tools make work more interesting because they remove the drudgery. Asana put out some research a couple of years ago that I quoted in one of my previous books that 37% of the time employees were doing work about work. What does that mean? It means it's all the stuff that sucks and is going to drive a productivity and efficiency expert like you insane. It's scheduling meetings. It's trying to find a document because, oh, he doesn't use Teams. He uses email. Oh, that's in Google Drive. No, it's not. It's in box.net. And you wind up spending all this time and quite frankly, getting frustrated on all this really low value administrative work. I mean, put me to work for you know, 10, 11 hours a day when I'm feeling the flow, right? I love it, right? I get jazzed from it. But every time I have to forward an email to someone because that person can't find it, a little piece of me dies inside. So in theory, then we could let people get more of their time back with some of these tools and a company that can't afford a full-time CXO or developer or whatever could have one on a fairly regular basis. And internally, if it is a more senior person, you know, this isn't you're copying on an email, fill at gmail.com. It's fill at company x.com. So there's more credibility and nothing, not that it's permanent, but it seems less ephemeral than if it's who the hell's this person again. Yeah. And this kind of feeds into what we were talking about earlier with remote work and meetings and uh, re, uh, not recency bias. That's a whole other thing. Proximity bias. Although recency bias too. How recent have I seen you or have I, how recent have I talked to you helps, but it feeds into that with the idea that the, you know, Hey, this meeting could have been an email or this email could have been a voice memo where you explain it a little better and I can hear the tone in your voice versus having to read it into the subtext or an audio recording, or one of these asynchronous videos through Loom or Slack Clips or Microsoft Teams. I mean, there are a ton of tools that do it. So yeah, I mean, in previous books, I cover more of those collaboration type tools. But there's a reason that this one is the fourth in a series on the future of work. I specifically wanted to write one that covered things in a maybe a broader manner, didn't go as deep, because you can absolutely, and people have done it, written very long, interesting books about blockchain or AI or immersive technologies. And, and I read a bunch of them uh, for the book and I tried to distill what I thought the most important information was, but then provided additional resources, whether it's the bibliography or an in-text citation or one of, I think, 350 endnotes. I went a little nuts with those. But I, I, again, I don't have all the answers. And if you want to go deep into virtual or augmented reality, which you probably should, since I think Apple just announced that it's uh, $3,000 handset's going to drop, I think it's next month, finally. 
there are plenty of other resources to do this. I do not have all the answers. I have not magically found a way to cram everything you need to know about all these things into 270 pages or whatever it is. I'm, I'm not that smart. Yeah, I don't know about Apple's headset. I know that there was, I mean, there people balked when, what is it, Meta, I keep wanting to say Facebook, but Zuckerberg will say, uh, when he, they announced the $1,500 one that was like the, what, the, the Meta Quest Pro or whatever it's called for 1500 And I thought people were already barely paying for the Meta Quest or the Oculus, as it was previously known. The Oculus 2 was like, what, three to 350 something like that. And even that is, I mean, that's not something simple and easy to just plunk down stuff for. You like, you know, right. it's cheaper than a PlayStation 5, or at least it was. But uh, I think because I think they upped the price. But it's like part of the problem with these immersive technologies as a solution is that, in my personal opinion, the tech and the software, the hardware, the software is not there yet. The tipping point hasn't happened yet. They've got to have a it like the iPhone for smartphones where it started off subsidized and then became payment plan oriented, et cetera. We're not at that tipping point yet where it's workable enough and cheap enough for it to be mass consumed and used. I think that you hit the nail on the head with the word consumed. Well, think about it in terms of enterprises. And in the book, I mentioned Walmart and Accenture, companies that have spent a lot of money and saved a lot of money using these immersive technologies to train employees. So are we there for consumers yet? At 3000 bucks a pop, that's the tough pill to swallow. I doubt that Apple's plans on selling a boatload of these. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. But in the enterprise, I think it's very possible that companies purchase a bunch of not necessarily Apple products, but they're already doing this because they see the benefits of it. And even though Zoom is fine, it certainly isn't the best that we can do. And if you buy into the thesis that remote work and dispersion are here to stay, I think that they are, at least for the medium term, how can companies use this as an opportunity to up their games? Does that mean buying every employee of an Oculus or one of these new Apple headsets, whatever they call it? Probably not. I'm old enough to remember days in which you didn't have your own laptop. You went into an office and you used the company computer and you walked out without it. Um, so I, I'm very curious to see how this plays out. But there's a quote in the book from uh, Keith Oberman about soccer uh, in the United States. It's the sport of the future and always will be. I think a lot about that with AR. I'm totally dating myself here. But do you remember that Stephen King book, The Lawnmower Man, that they turned into a mid-90s movie with Jeff Fahey? Yes. So that was VR. And you go, oh my gosh, this is coming amazing. It's amazing, right? When is it coming? Well, that was three decades ago. I do think that we've made enough strides that I don't know if we crossed the, the Rubicon, so to speak, but I don't think that you can dismiss it as a pipe dream. I mean, companies are actually using this. And I focused on Walmart and Accenture because with Accenture, you've got employees who are making you know, mid six figures, probably more in some cases. And Walmart, you know, the average employee is probably making minimum wage or, or close to it. Or I think they went to $15 an hour. But again, blue collar, white collar, more manual work more versus more quote unquote knowledge work, whatever that means. So if those two companies are leaning into it, I think it would be silly to dismiss it outright. Yeah, I think we're in the BlackBerry days of VR at this point. It's functional. It works. It's kind of, you know, what's the best of it that's out there? Or maybe we're getting to that. Maybe we're almost to BlackBerry days. Because again, I think a $3,000 headset from Apple, mass consumers aren't going to buy that. No, not going to happen. That's like a laptop and a TV and a game system and a this and a that. And yeah, it's got all that in it. But like come on, it's not a necessity by any means. It's going to have to be subsidized by work or other options. Yeah, I think that's fair. But again, who knows? I, I don't think I'm wrong on these forces, but I, if I had a crystal ball, I'd, I'd play the lottery and 
bet lots of money on sports games. Yeah. Well, speaking of betting, let's go to something else that a lot of people have been talking about. I know you said it's not just cryptocurrency, which makes me think of the whole betting aspect of things and all of that. And I may be way off there, but because again, my limited knowledge of cryptocurrency and blockchain has been just, well, it's tanking. And I kind of understood the the decentralized notion of it. But uh, for those that don't understand it, without talking like crypto bros here, <laughs> let's enlighten people a little bit. On um, blockchain? Yeah. Yeah, it's a decentralized ledger. It's the easiest way to explain it. All right, what does that mean? If you've ever taken an accounting course or you're a small business owner, you know, run QuickBooks or use Wave apps, which I like a lot more, but that's a different discussion. Your debits need to equal your credits. And you're not so, you know, you can't, put in a, a journal entry of paying $500 to Eric without a corresponding entry of where did that $500 come from. So the same at a high level of principle applies to blockchain. Let's make it less abstract. In the book, I use the example of hello sign, which Dropbox rebranded as Dropbox sign. So if I, let's say you and I are working together in something, you hire me to do whatever. And there's a contract. You send it to me and I open it up on my computer. It tracks my IP address and my device, the time, the date, all that metadata and I sign it, and I shoot it over to you. Companies like that, and there's another one, um, Drop Hub, uh, Hub, that's it. They also use blockchain technology because you can prove the provenance of a document, right? And that's legally enforceable. It's, blockchain is immutable. If you make a mistake, you would just add another block. You wouldn't delete anything. So I think about that in so many different contexts, Eric. I mean, think about the insanity of going to a doctor's office first time and filling out forms. Why isn't there a blockchain of everything I've ever had done to myself from going to the dentist to uh, getting knee surgery to getting bopped in the head or whatever, you know, getting a broken finger and going to urgent care. So there are lots of applications of blockchain. And to me, that's a close cousin of generative AI, because as I was saying earlier, if I hired you to write code, prove it. And not to mention the whole deep fakes thing, which we can talk about for a while. My boss fired me. I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to use one of these tools to fake a, you know, I guess there's a podcasting tool as well that helps you if you make a mistake during a podcast and we've all done it, basically correct it using your voice. Okay, that's useful. That helps your productivity. You can appreciate that more than anyone. But what if it's not your voice? What if it's your manager's voice? I'm watching this show now on Peacock called The Capture and you see what happens with deep fakes. I mean, this stuff is terrifying. So I don't see how you can ignore blockchain, even though there is this natural association to conflate it with with cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin. There actually are lots of other interesting applications of it. And to me, it's downright irresponsible not to I mean, you may be using it and you don't even know it, right? Particularly with these tools like DocHub. The key point here is that I think a lot of people hear the word blockchain and they automatically have in their head equals cryptocurrency and 100%. then they hear just about cryptocurrency and then they think well blockchain is not dependable not reliable etc or it's risky all these things but again they may be already using it and may be unaware of it just like they may be using ai that's now baked into certain software like i mean there's a certain productivity software out there that just announced they have ai inside of itself and it's like that right it might be but i know notion just added ai I think they did that back in December. And at the time, I thought, though, that's really strange. But now I guess it makes sense because they offer you a certain number of API calls or whatever. And if you go above that, they can charge you more. So uh, Satya Nadella, 
of the CEO of Microsoft, um, the Google CEO, uh, Sandai Pichar, all mentioned that AI is not going to be so much a standalone tool, whether it's chat, GPT, or mid-journey, but think of it as a feature. So if you use Microsoft Word or Google Sheets or whatever, you've probably seen the demos from Microsoft. You can speak into PowerPoint, give me a seven-slide presentation on my daughter's graduation. And you might want to tweak it, but it certainly gives you a head start. And I think for brainstorming, for summaries, I think that we could talk all day about that. I get a little bit queasy when it comes to generating original content. By definition, it's going to be anodyne. It's trained against, it can be fine, but you want to just put out a fine book or a fine podcast. Ideally, it's something special, something that AI can't do at least yet. But you know, when I think about summaries, going out of the country for a week and then coming back and not checking your email as we're so inclined to do on Microsoft Teams and getting some sort of summary of the five things that you need to do right now. That to me is tremendously valuable. Why can't we do that in a productivity tool like Notion or Rike or whatever? Why do we need to go to a separate website or app like a chat GPT? So I do think that, especially with the plugins, the APIs, why can't I speak into Kayak and say, book me a trip versus click Monday, click coming back Wednesday, click, I want to fly economy, click, I want to fly in the morning, click. And why can't it just learn that and go based on your previous trips with us? This seems like a decent itinerary for you. Or, hey, I know you weren't thinking of going anywhere, but guess what? In Albuquerque, they're doing a tour of Breaking Bad. Where do I side? When, <laughs> when can I leave? Oh, I mean, it, it's exciting, but it's, it's also, as you know, uh, terrifying. Yeah, it, and it can be. And that, and that's the thing is I want I want to have the right amount of, air quotes, fear, or I want to be cautiously optimistic. I want to be optimistic that the tools can be used for for good, not ill. But I also know that, People using tools are people, and they're not always great, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, as you were talking it, it, about the flight specifically, it made me think of something that I've noticed happens, and, and I think it's a good thing or can be a good thing, is my phone knows which days I go specific places at certain times to the point where I will plug my phone in and CarPlay will pop up and it will suggest me going to a certain place because it knows Saturday mornings I meet with some guys for breakfast and it gave me the map. And I mean, I don't need the map. I know right where I'm going, but it was like, hey, it's Saturday morning and you know this and it's predictively saying, hey, Here's the map for you. And it's kind of like that. It's like, if you know that I want to do early flights so I can get to my location, like kayak, as you were talking with that example, there are benefits. There are definite uses here for this, as long as we can figure out how to use them the right way. <laughs> yeah. But one of my favorite quotes is from Melvin Kranzberg. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. So I, I love your example. I same thing happens to me when I go to the gym. It knows that it's going to take seven minutes, give or take, or if you had an alert with traffic, you may want to skip this road and go that road or whatever. But what if someone got a hold of it? And so Phil goes to the gym at nine o'clock. Let's go to his house and do all sorts of stuff or break in. So yeah, it's, uh, I, I like to, I try to be optimistic. Um, it can be hard on some days when you hear about not just with the different technology, but some of the management or personnel decisions. But yes, I think that's a, a very good way of putting it. They're tools and they're powerful, but people use them and people aren't necessarily infallible. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from an Italian philosopher. I forget the name, but it's something like, um, we are not thinking machines who feel, we are feeling machines who occasionally think. I love it. I love it. And I hope that we can think more. I want to kind of land this plane here and say, I think this is a really great starter point for people, even if they have familiarity with any of the nine forces that you're talking about in this book, there's probably seven plus 
maybe that they haven't been thinking enough about or all nine of them for that matter. But I want to get people's hands on the book and start their discussions. I want to let you. Yes. <laughs> I want them to start their own tactical creations when it comes to these things and, and being ahead of the curve here, or at least up to date with the curve because it's moving so fast. So Phil, where can people join you and connect with you and find out more about the book? com. All right. Well, Phil, again, you're so prolific. I'm sure you're going to be back soon enough. And even aside from that, we're going to chat at some point here about Succession and Breaking Bad. And I'm like a fungus, Eric. We can't get rid of me. Yes. (laughs) Phil, great to talk with you yet again. And can't wait till you're back. Thanks for being here. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed listening in on this conversation with Phil Simon as much as I enjoyed having it with him. These are definitely topics we need to be talking about individually, collectively, at a larger scale. We need to be figuring out where we sit on these things, what we can do with them, about them, etc., They're not going away. We need to be talking about them. In fact, I imagine that, again, this is probably the third or fourth now episode where generative AI or language learning models have come up aside from the one intentional episode I had about that with Chris Penn. And if you missed that one, go back and listen to that. We'll list that in the show notes. If you know of somebody that needs to hear this episode, which you probably do, do me a favor, do them a favor, hit share wherever you're listening to this, let them know about this episode, or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com, share it from there. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.